Hello world, this is J.D. Graves with the Iconoclash Review. Welcome to the podcast, your home for quality cheap thrills. Sorry to cut the intro off this week, but we've got a jam-packed show and I don't have any time to waste. Coming up, I've got an interview with Matt Gomez talking about what it takes to run an independent fiction magazine in the 21st century. Also, I want to say to you right now, we still have one more week to send us your quality cheap thrills. Please do so. Add to the heap for me to read. I want your quality cheap thrills. Following the interview with Matt Gomez, we'll have a story by Victoria Talpy. Four Brothers and Blasters, I didn't read that much horror fiction. I didn't read that much crime fiction. Mm-hmm. And then they showed this magazine, like, oh, no, just has fiction and fantasy. And then we kept on getting all these crime stories and weird western and off the wall, that shit kind of stories. It's like, I need to read more of it. <laughs> right. And then falling in with um, Alex Cizak, Paul Martin, and Scott Rutherford, Switchblade, and that got me reading more crime stuff. And now I'm reading more indie crime stories. It's it's opened the doors for my reading. Not that it was ever really small to begin with, but really just kind of opened me up mm-hmm. to all the other stuff that's, actually, that's coming out recently that I would not have found otherwise if I had not done this magazine. Right. Matt, what would you consider yourself to be before before you started Broadswords and Blasters? I was kind of like not even a hack writer. I, w- I mean, I wasn't even doing the indie circuit, really, at that point. I was <laughs> I was so far beyond that. I mean, I was, uh-huh. I enjoyed reading, absolutely, but I didn't know that there was I – I honestly, when I, we started the magazine, we were like, hey, there's no other magazine out here like this in our naivete. And then we started it up, and we started seeing that there were a lot of other – there were quite a few other magazines out there that were doing this. It's like, oh, we're not alone. We're not that unique. And that's actually kind of reassuring that there are other people that's mm-hmm. crazy as we are that are trying to do this thing. Because it, it is a labor of love. I mean, Absolutely. And- you know as well as everybody else does that this is something that if you're going to do it, you have to devote yourself mm-hmm. to doing it. This isn't, this isn't a sideline hobby that you're going to pick up on a whim mm-hmm. and you can devote a couple of hours every weekend to. No, this is something that is going. This is this is something that's going to replace. That's going to replace time in your life that you're never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a, that's a good one. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig a really big hole and I'm going to throw my, all my time and money into it, and I'm never going to see it again. <laughs> and and this is something that Cam, I mean, Cameron and I had talked about for years. So I occasionally like I would submit a piece every now and then to a magazine and get bummed out because nobody was taking it. And a lot of the times it was, it was, well, this isn't the kind of picture we're looking for right now. So and I'm sitting here going, oh, I don't have the money where I can go and buy all your magazines to find out what it is you're looking for. So I can pin the, uh, so I can pin the tail on the weasel that's free-falling from orbit to figure out what it is that you're looking for that given month. And so we set out and said, hey, this is the kind of fiction that we enjoy. It's the kind of fiction we like. We, we, we really like the, we like the Pulse. We like Robert Howard, Ray Howard. Mm-hmm. Joy Lovecraft's. What Lovecraft did with the cosmic horror genre, I don't always appreciate the man himself. Yeah. As far as the magazine, I mean, one of the things we set out to do with the magazine was saying, here's what we really liked about the pulp adventures. And we acknowledged that they're not perfect and that it's not the 1920s and 30s anymore. So what can we do that's a little bit different that addresses that when we're looking at the story? What we did, was, what we did I think what we did was pretty good, which is we came up with a process for how we were looking at the stories and how we were judging the stories. 
Awesome. But that's actually what I want. I got I got some questions here that I want to ask you sure. <laughs> for the interview, and I'm so glad that you're steering it towards that direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, chit chat over. Let's get down to brass tacks, Matt. Absolutely. Um, sure. All right. So, uh, on average, I mean, how many subs would you guys get? I don't. I, I stopped counting after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely got a lot more subs than we thought we could. We would get. I mean, I remember when we first started. We were doing our first submission call for issue one. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we turned into issue one, we're like, no one's going to submit to us. Nobody mm-hmm. knows who we are. Mm-hmm. We need, neither one of us ha- really has a name out there. Mm-hmm. Who's going to submit? What we forgot was that we said that we we're going to pay people. <laughs> <laughs> if you put a dollar sign, they will come. And I was like, we're not even offering that much money. I think we were paying, what, 15 bucks a story? We weren't offering that much money, mm-hmm. but we were offering enough to get people interested. Where if they had something on the back burner that they hadn't been able to sell elsewhere, if they had a story that was just off the wall or what, what have you, they, they, they sent it to us. So I think we ended up mm-hmm. between 50 and 100 with that first call. And the numbers just kept going up. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think for the issues with that last that we did we ended up close maybe just over 200 submissions mm-hmm. that we got which is small potatoes compared to some places absolutely um, which is why we were able mm-hmm. to read every submission we didn't use slush readers mm-hmm. we didn't use first readers all stories were read by both Cameron and myself with one major exception mm-hmm. if I saw at the outset that you did not fall within our word count I can read your. I, mm-hmm. I don't have time. I mean, and there are other things that we could have done to eliminate more people out, from, out the gate. Um, so if it wasn't in a standard format, I, I could have said, "Well, not standard format. Not going to read it." We didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing I, I realized as a near the end was that I could probably read the first two pages and make my decision. That absolutely, or at least we know out ones that were not going to work for me within the first two pages. Mm-hmm. And that could have been anything from, great, you just hit me with two pages worth of description, where's your plot? I, re- I read the first three, I read mm-hmm. the first three paragraphs, and I have no idea what, st- what the stakes are. You're not going to work for me. And that's not going to be true with every magazine. That's not going <laughs> to be true with every venue. But what we were looking for was, we want to know what your stakes are. We want to have something meaningful for your stakes. Like, it, 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 something ha- there has to be something that happens mm-hmm. where... The status quo mm-hmm. is not the same at the beginning of the story as it is at the end of the story. There has to have been some sort of change that happened between the beginning and the end to, to, that is meaningful. It, it can be your, your character's mm-hmm. dead at the end, and that's a bummer, but it happens, and I'm okay with that. Absolutely. Um, but there were, two, uh, there were a couple of ones, especially ones that involved murder mysteries, where the, police is, where the police chief or whatever was going off to solve the mystery. It's like, there's a dead body. Like, okay. What's the stake if they don't solve the mystery? Is the police chief going to lose their job? Probably not. Mm-hmm. It's just going to mm-hmm. be that we don't know who killed the person. Well, I didn't know that at the beginning of the story either. How is this different? Um, there are also a couple of stories that we got that they told us almost at the outset what the ending was uh, going to be. I will say this about what you just said. There's a technique to hiding the ending in your very first sentence. You have to be very good at it. And most people are not that good. Well, especially at this level. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can do that, and I really get to the end, I'm like, ow! Mm-hmm. I'll be more, much more likely to take your story. Mm-hmm. But if at the very beginning of the story, I already I, can, I already know on the first read-through what's happening and how it's going to end, you've lost me. 
uh, unless, unless you can elevate your prose to the level of, of Nabokov, I'm just not going to read it. And, and and one of the things that I really enjoyed was working with Cameron, where we both read things, and we didn't always fully 100% align mm-hmm. with what we wanted to take and what we didn't want to take, but 90% of the time we did. Yeah, I'm, I, was, I was very jealous of you, too, because, I mean, you guys were putting out quality work every single, I mean, every single issue of Broadswords and Blasters, I would, I would read it and be like, you know, there's no there's no bells and whistles here. They're just focusing on the fiction, and uh, kudos to you guys because you guys delivered uh, consistently yep. for how many issues was it? Twelve complete issues over three years. And, and we and we set out we, we what part a lot of it had to do with how we internalized what some other what other magazines do, which is how we wanted to want, how we wanted to be treated as writers and how we've been treated as writers mm-hmm. uh, by certain magazines. Mm-hmm. So a couple. So there were a couple of things. One was that we were always going to respond to people, um, and we were going to try to give as much personal feedback as we could, while acknowledging the time constraints that associated with that. So we always wanted to tell people, like, if we're not taking your story, here's why. The second thing was we always wanted to respond. We didn't want to leave anybody hanging. So I mean, we've both been burned by places where you just never hear from the venue. Again, oh, absolutely. Which is like great. So did you like it? You didn't? Did I just fall into the wasteland? I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Did, and that uh, that sucks. Um, the third thing was we, especially when we were getting close to the, we knew we were going to wrap up with issue twelve, and we hadn't told anybody that yet. Mm-hmm. We wanted didn't want to leave mm-hmm. anybody hanging where we told them they were going to take the story and then we closed without publishing. Which is the standard operating okay. procedure for an independent fiction magazine. And and we didn't want to go out that way. I think we decided in March of last year. That issues that we were going to be done with. Oh, wow! So it was that that long. Oh yeah, we knew we we knew for a while that this was gonna that this was our last hurrah. Wow! And you guys are just sitting on that, sitting on it like a big old surprise party for the world that is our small community. That, that's also that, that's also why I mean people are like, well, aren't you upset? I'm like, I've been processing this grief for about nine months now. So I've I've got a lot of the upset. I got a lot of the upset out of me. And I kept on looking at the, at the balances. They're like, okay, so how much money have we put in? How much have mm-hmm. we got it back? Mm-hmm. What am I doing with this? And that played a part too, but not as much as you might think. One other question I want to ask you uh, about about what you're doing is, uh, do you have anything that you would like to suggest uh, to, our, to our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, I would like to recommend In Just the Right Light. Oh, absolutely. By William Solden. Yeah, that's a great one. But it's, it's very much about the Rust Belt oh, yeah. uh, and looking at how... Um, one generation kind of leads to the train wreck of the next generation. Um, it's, it's probably the best way that I can put that. And just it's it's one generation's bad decisions informing the bad decisions of those that are coming after them. Um, and it is really good, and it's a really strong look mm-hmm. at that set that that part of the country. Um, and it's not it's not done in a glamorous way, mm-hmm. but it's not done in a exploitative way. Um, but I definitely think that it's a book that people should be picking mm-hmm. up and reading. Good call on that one, uh, Matt. I appreciate you uh, calling in and uh, having a talk with me and putting it on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a good one. In her bio, it says, Victoria is a writer and artist based out of Providence, Rhode Island. Her first novel, Parasite Life, came out in January 2018 from Shezine Publications. Take it away, Victoria.
The Girl by Victoria Delby. Back and forth, back and forth, her hips thrust, scant inches from the man's slack face. She looked down at him, letting her sex get closer and closer to his hooded eyes. The rhythmic drumbeat shook the drinks along the stage. The can lights glowed hot onto the stage. The hunched patrons watched transfixed, still as statues. They lined the stage, which jutted out like a jetty and was shaped like an uppercase T. Smoke rose slowly from cigarettes balanced between fingers. It thickened the air, created a veil of unreality in the space. The dancer was the only moving thing in that fog, and move she did. Her body glistened with a fine coat of sweat and oil. It reflected, multicolored, like a greasy puddle in a parking lot. She moved like a serpent, or a cat, or a Grecian Olympiad. The loud, overly loud, live music pounded into the temples, and stayed there, transitioning into a headache that would remain long after the music had stopped. The band was wedged in a corner, shrouded in shadow. All hearts fell into rhythm with a thump, 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 and all the while she moved with it, embodied it. If you sat amongst those patrons, it'd be hard to get a good, solid look at her. You'd be able to tell that she was toned, that each muscle was outlined, emphasized. Maybe not to the level of a gymnast, but she was close. Let yourself imagine what it meant that she'd thr thrust those hips so aggressively. Go ahead and picture how she'd look if she let down her raven hair and really went for it. If you looked at her breasts, and you would, you'd see that they were perky, and although full, they stayed steady when she moved. If you asked her if they were real, she'd invariably answer with a smirk and a wink. Let your eyes linger a little too long on her toned belly or on her tidily shaved pubis. Let your mind wander about what it was like between those thighs. But what about her face? It was impossible to tell, really. It was too hidden under theatrical makeup and harsh stage light. But if you watched carefully, you'd occasionally see a curved line, like maybe she was smiling. If you sat there for long enough, the shift would change. A new dancer would emerge. From shift to shift and outfit to outfit, she would remake herself. She was a chameleon with many faces and identities. The only aspect that went unchanged were her eyes. They remained a strange emerald green. If you followed her every night, watched her for months, you would learn little more. She was paid in cash. She had no address or contact information on file in the front office. Even in a business as seedy as Club Dreams, this was uncommon. The owner, Rico, Rico a postule of a man, would not even remember exactly when he hired her. If you asked him, he'd get a pained, haunted look on his face and say it was like she'd always been there. Then he'd shake off the look and make sure your drink was full and offer you a lap dance from one of the girls, obviously. Not from her, though. She did not do lap dances for any price. She went by the girl, and none of the other dancers knew her by anything else. The man in the trench coat sat at a dark corner table far from the stage. He liked the table and gave him a view of the dancers while sparing him the indignity of rubbing elbows with any of the regulars. He regarded them only a little higher than barnacles or slugs. The man in the trench did not want to be misidentified as one of them. He hated places like this. He hated the miasma of desperation that clung to everything and everyone inside. So instead he stayed back in the darkest parts of the dark room with his bourbon and his thoughts. 
He had a small notebook open on the table, and periodically he'd make notes in it with an expensive-looking pen. He'd been to Club Dreams many nights in a row. The same cocktail waitress had waited on him for three nights. Her name was Janica, and she wore a teddy that glowed in the black light. Her lipstick was red. Her lower lip pouted, accentuated by a piercing. By night three, Danica's curiosity about the man in the trench coat was definitely piqued. She did a poor job of hiding her stolen glances into the notebook. It was clear that he was waiting for the girl's set. She tended to dance toward the end of the night. That many had to sit through all the headliners. He had to watch as they waggled their wares at the dead-eyed patrons with their crumpled dollar bills held aloft. Tonight was no different, and tonight, like the two nights before when the girls came on, he sat up and paid attention. Tonight, her aesthetic was pure fetish, leather boots up over the knees. Her long black hair was piled in a high-set ponytail, the gleaming tresses nearly identical to the long cat of nine tails in her hand. She began to move to the harsh music, the band blending jazz with exotic sounds of the Far East and the drumming of Africa. It worked. He hated to admit how taken he was by her. To the slugs, she was just another unfuckable object waggling her sex, but he found himself truly captivated by her. His hand moved almost unconsciously across the page of his notebook as he moved, as she moved across the stage. When he looked down, he saw that he had written the word wild. Danica came over, tried again to see what he wrote in his book. He snapped it closed and looked up to her, at her. For the first time in three nights, he asked for something other than a drink. He asked for information. What's the girl's name? How long has she worked there? Where was she from? Danica was wary, both as a cautious woman protecting her co-worker and as a jealous woman who'd been, she was loath to admit to herself, vying for his attention those last three nights. Danica's first answer was a defense. She'd only been serving drinks at the club for three months. The girl had been there for years. How many years, he asked quickly. Danica didn't know. Her jealousy was clear in her words. Why are you so interested in her? He ignored the question. You don't like her? Danica shrugged as on the stage the girl cracked her whip inches in front of one of the patrons. She's weird. Doesn't even go by a name, you know? Not even us backstage. He suggested maybe the girl was just intensely private. Maybe she was putting herself through nursing school and didn't want her daytime life colliding with her nighttime job. Danica snorted at that. Nursing school, right. Yeah, we're all doctors and lawyers incognito in here. Look, you care so much, talk to Bobby. He's been here since she started. Danica walked off without saying who Bobby was or where he could be found. And for the rest of the night, the man's drink sat empty and unattended. Danica's interest had clearly ebbed. Bobby, it turned out, was a bouncer. After the girl's set was done, after he'd tried to sneak through the back alley into the dressing room, and only after Bobby had grabbed him and slammed him in against the brick wall of the building, did he find, out, find that out. Bobby was tall and white as a fridge. His dark skin, combined with his black shirt and trousers, rendered him nearly invisible in the alley. That was, the man in the trench coat figured as he was thrust against the brick wall, why he hadn't seen Bobby till it was too late. The man gasped as Bobby's fist hit his stomach. He hunched against the alley wall, the air heavy with piss and garbage rot. Insult to injury, he thought to himself, as the second punch hit in the jaw, busting his lip. Bobby held him there, his arm immovable as carved stone. Staff only, Bobby finally mentioned, by way of explanation. 
The man smiled then and explained that he wasn't looking for the girls. He was looking for Bobby. You found him, Bobby said. The man in the trench coat started asking questions then. How long have you worked at Club Dreams? How long have you worked with the girl? You remember when she started where she lives? Bobby wasn't inclined to give any answers. The mention of the girl clearly put him on edge. But the man in the trench coat had a certain charming way about him, even through the gasps and the pain. Bobby finally gave in a bit. Bobby had been there five years, give or take. The girl was a regular dancer for the last two or three. No, Bobby did not want to talk about her. Why the hell do you want to know all this? Bobby finally asked. You a pervert? A stalker? Some kind of ex-husband? feel like I spend most of my shifts chasing off her fans. The man hated being compared to the scum that frequented this place, but he didn't let it get to him. He smiled. None of that. I'm a private investigator hired to track down a missing girl. One that resembles your girl there, in there. Bobby scratched his nose, thought this through, then offered a bit of advice. We're friends, but I don't know nothing about her. None of us know a damn thing about her. Nothing. She comes in, she does her job, and then she leaves. You want to know about her so bad? You're going to have to ask her your damn self. And then he threw the man out of the alley. Later, he settled into his car parked across the street from the club. The facade was a mute gray stone, perfectly rectangular and windowless. It reminded him of a prison. Beggars can't be choosers, and he had visited his share of penitentiaries in his career. It was yet another mark against this already seedy establishment. The only visual distinction of the building was its name. In horrible pink cursive, Club Dreams, found himself staring at the sign, pondering its meaning. Was it a club full of dreams? Was it the club of your dreams? He damned at his bloody lip. Was this whole evening one bad dream? The street around the place was industrial. At this hour, it was quiet, except for the few people milling around out in front of the club. Across the street was the bay. It was near silent, save the quiet lapping of the tide and the distant roar of the highway. He didn't have long to wait before a figure emerged from the alley, heading to the gated parking lot across the street. She had on a trench coat, so similar to his, it was uncanny, and had a printed scarf over her hair, but even hidden, he could tell it was the girl. She walked with a determination that he thought few others of the girls could muster. Could muster. If she walked any harder, her heels would punch holes in the asphalt. She did not get into a car. Instead, she passed the parking lot and continued walking along the sidewalk. He couldn't imagine any of the dancers willingly walking home along this stretch. No one would ever hear you scream. One side of the road dropped off into polluted water. The other side of the street consisted of man-made mountains of rusted scrap metal. Not a car on the street besides his own, which he started, and quietly, with his headlights out, began to follow her. She walked for a long time, her gait steady, the staccato of clicking of her heels, the only sound for miles. Her tan trench shone like a beacon on the dark street and was easy for him to follow from a distance. When she took a sharp right into a gated marina area, he followed, parked and followed on foot. She had squeezed between two ten-foot-tall chain-link fences that were wreathed in rusted barbed wire. The man made his way through the gap in the fence, and it was a tight fit, and his coat tore its shoulder. He made a mental note that the ordinary client would be billed extra for that. He tongued the split lip he now had, courtesy of Bobby the Bouncer. These guys, he owed them, and they hadn't been too happy with him of late. So he needed to find this girl and finish the job. Could not go home empty-handed if he wanted to keep his hands. Inside the marina, the road consisted of crushed cell, and every step crunched and echoed, loud. 
The road was lined with tall ships, and the air was briny and moist. He hurried as fast as he dared, as quiet as he could, moving along the road's edge, wary of the guard dogs, wary of security guards, wary of the night itself. Up ahead he saw the girl disappear into a darkened doorway, and he followed. When he reached the door, he found it locked. He rounded the building and reached the back, where the shore butted up against it. There was a long dock separated by a few feet of water. His curiosity was definitely ignited. What was she doing here? Squatting? Hooking on the side? He pictured her removing her trench, her naked body underneath. He imagined watching her straddle some dock worker John through a grimy window. He stopped himself before the mental image went too far. He found he could enter the building from the dock. The massive doors, large enough to accommodate a decent-sized fishing boat, were open. He removed his shoes and socks, rolled his pants to the knees, and slowly began to slosh through the ice-cold water, biting his lip as his feet pressed down on sharp rocks and garbage that hid beneath the black. Finally, he reached the dock. His pants were wet and his feet throbbed. He hoisted himself up and he put his shoes back on. His senses stretched up and out, looking for any sign of her. There was none. He entered the cavernous space, his shoes unavoidably loud on the concrete floor. Pale light streamed in from the broken front windows, allowing him to navigate around the tarp-covered equipment and boat skeletons. The air smelled musty, and he could hear the occasional sound of nesting seabirds up in the rafters. The front door was deadbolted from the inside. Where was the girl? He hated to admit the feeling of dread that coiled up in his spine or the tremor in his hand. The water slapped against the concrete of the floor, and he walked toward it, staring down into it. It's black as ink. She had to be inside someplace, but there was nowhere else to hide. It was essentially a three-sided box. The fourth wall was open to the sea. He decided to retrace his footsteps. There were other buildings in the marina. It was possibly made a mistake. Gone to the wrong door, even. He should go. Get out there. He could always return to the club the next night. He turned and began walking toward the door. Splash. He spun beneath tight breath tightened his chest. He looked back toward the water. Another splash. Closer. Something was in the water. There was movement below the dock line. Movement he could not see unless he stepped closer. His throat tightened, dried out, and he slowly removed, resumed walking. Backwards now toward the main door. More sounds in the water. Louder. Closer. The water parted and rippled, slapping the sides of the cement dock. Before he could react or call out, something leapt out and landed heavily, wetly, on the concrete. The commotion sent the roosting birds into the air, their wings deafening as dust and feathers flooded down. He went, wanted to flee, to run toward the door, fling it open, get to the car, and drive off. He was already halfway home in his mind, but his feet did not move. His face turned slack, and his eyes stared dumbly forward as the thing congealed into form. It was black the black of onyx and shark eyes. It was standing on four legs. Its feet were hooved. It had a long neck that came to a sharp snout, and it was massive. The man's mind, in an attempt to understand, triggered a childhood memory, a stampede of giant horses running toward him, Clydesdale horses. They were terrifically powerful, and those massive creatures were dwarfed in comparison to this thing. The thing stomped its hooves, and plumes of misty air smelling of the sea trumpeted from its nose. It stepped closer to him. Scant light shone on its blackness, revealing a thick hide like an oil slick and dripping. A tangled cluster of seaweed formed a sickly mane. And then he saw its eyes, and they were gleaming, and they were green, emerald green. The man could do nothing then but stare. 
The flesh of the beast rippled as if millions upon millions of maggots were rushed to the surface, and with a wet tearing sound the skin tore open, revealing pearlescent meat beneath, white like the belly of a worm. The man moaned then, the air forced out of his open mouth. The hide of the beast fell to the floor of the splat, and the wormy, smooth flesh beneath fell in on itself, shrinking and folding over like loops of intestine or octopus limbs or slugs mating, until finally it became a humanoid shape, where there was once a globular, smooth nothing, the simple contours of a face pushed through. Slivers yawned open and became eyes. Wetness oozed apart and became a mouth. And then the girl stood before him, nude and dripping wet, her long back hair loose down her back. Her green eyes watched him, as alien now as in the other form. The man experienced then a disorienting moment of pure amnesia. His name, his life, all of it fled. His consciousness so thoroughly as to stand there unwritten, a blank, smooth as the sand after the surf scrubs it clean. She waited, the water rolling off her skin, pooling on the concrete. Finally, the pistons began firing, and his brain reactivated. Professional. He was a professional. I've been looking for you, he said. His voice shook. She did not answer, but nodded, her eyes sparking in the sodium light, filtering in from outside. I was hired. I'm an investigator, you see. Hired to find you. My client wanted you located. They wanted a third party to approach you. He found himself standing, stammering. And here you are, and I have a message for you. She said nothing. For a moment, he let himself look at her, really look. Her body gleamed, muscles outlined, breasts high, dark, perfectly shaped areolas. Her mouth, her navel, her knees, her sex. He was lost in it. She cocked her head. The message, yes, of course, he apologized. I have the envelope here. He pulled a crumpled paper out with sweaty, trembling fingers and handed it to her. She made no move to reach for it. Here's the information they wanted me to give you, he said, again, trying to push the paper on her so she could leave. When her inaction refused... And again, he put the envelope on the concrete floor, weighing it down with an old bottle that just happened to be near his foot. She smiled demurely then, toothlessly, her eyes never blinking, never leaving him. And then she reached out. The man knew he should step back. The lizard part of his mind was clanging every alarm bell it had access to, and his entire body was instantly juiced with electric adrenaline. But for all that, he stayed put, his feet welded to his shoes, shoes welded to the ground, her hand nearly touched his face. You know why they sent you? You must have owed someone. You must have angered someone. She did not move her mouth. Her voice was a ghost in his head, as if his own thoughts. Her fingers were frigid. Even an inch away, he could feel the cold off her skin. And he shook his head fast. No, I mean, no, we had our difficulties, but <laughs> I do quality work. I found you, after all. Her lips quirked, not into a smile exactly, but something close to it. She knelt, gathering her skin or flesh or cloak or whatever the hell it was to her, slimed along her bare legs, crawling up the swell of her hips, inflating as it melted back into her. She turned from him, her back legs filling out, her full glossy rump inches from him, muscles tensing, hoofed feet clacking, dripping tail swishing. His fight-or-flight instinct was stomped by another impulse, his own lust. She intoxicated him. He felt himself grow hard, impossibly hard. He could not pull his eyes from her. The womanly perfection of her face, her breasts, and the power of her muscular black haunches. Her dripping tail swished. It was too much. Touch me. The invitation tipped him over the edge. He reached out, and his right hand touched her flank. His mind ignited with desire. He wanted to fuck this magnificent monster. 
She was cold and soft to the touch, but the slick viscosity of egg whites. He put his hand, other hand on her, stepping closer to her, bringing his body behind her, pressing into her back legs. She moved back, meeting his movement. In that moment, she felt perfect to him. His lower, her lower half seductively equine, her upper half gloriously woman. He tried to move his right hand up her body toward the human side, but it wouldn't move. He tried again, harder. It was stuck. Both his hands were stuck as if glued. His lust curdled in an instant and turned to panic. He pulled as hard as he could, wrenched his shoulder. His wrist cried out in pain. He screamed, unconcerned with anything besides freeing his goddamned hand. Help me, he begged. He pleaded. He threw his weight, but the harder he wriggled, the firmer his hand stuck. She met his teary, frightened eyes with her cool green ones, and there was a flicker of something. Regret, apology, annoyance even, but it vanished quickly. Instead, she turned, and the thick black hide crawled up her ribs and breasts before swallowing the rest of her. And she was once again a creature, once again a hellish steed, crawled out from watery nightmares, assembled from the very fabric of his fear. And with a snort, like ocean spray, she leapt back into the sea, taking him along with her. He screamed, but no one heard him. The water was terrifically cold, and it was so dark, he felt blind. Her blackness blended in with the nighttime water as if she was invisible. His mind flailed as his body did, panic screaming through him. Why, he screamed into the water, why are you doing this to me? They lied to you. They betrayed you. To be sent to me is to be sent to death. And she plunged deeper, miles from shore now, miles from the air. The pressure squeezed his skull. Images of his life flickered before him. And they left him feeling small and meaningless. His last thought was a disjointed memory of her dancing. Only now she was half hoarse, and he was at the edge of the stage waving money, begging her to come to him. His brain misfired, his lungs gasped in a mouthful of ocean, and then he was gone. His hands detached, and the life left his body. He drifted away from her, caught a current, and moved further and further from shore. He floated gracefully, his trench coat unfurling like wings or fins, and he became carrion of the sea. By dawn light, there was no trace either being had ever been there, save an envelope. But inside was a blank piece of paper. It would not be claimed. That was some show, guys. I'll see you next week. Until then. No!